Welcome to Stuff You Should Know from HowStuffWorks.com. Hey, and welcome to the podcast. I'm Josh Clark. There's Charles W. Chuck Bryant. Jerry's over there, and it's Stuff You Should Know. Okay? <laughs> Already? Yeah. Uh, this was the Josh Clark article, correct? It was. From a while ago? Yeah, how the Louvre works. Oh, yeah, this is... I already apologize in advance for the French pronunciations. I'm going to try my best. I am too, but it makes you sound obnoxious for some reason. Not you, but... No, I know it's me. You know, if you really go you know, French with everything, it, it makes you sound like a jerk. Like, <laughs> Louvre. Is it Louvre or is it Louvre? Louvre. Is it? Louvre. Right. Louvre. You say it like that. I'm going to try as well. So but no, I mean, it's yeah. It's, we're paying homage to the um, the the mother tongue of the museum we're talking about, the seat of culture and art. Yeah, for centuries now, biggest, uh, busiest museum in the world. Yeah, and apparently it's gotten much busier in the last couple decades. Yeah, I saw eight point eight million visitors a year at this point. Nine point eight in two thousand. Oh, really? Two thousand ten, it was nine point eight. That was the high mark. Uh, 2013, it was 9.3 million. Okay, so it's the crack the nine. Yeah, but back in 1989, it was 3 million. Wow. So they're up like almost 7 million people a year. Yeah, and I've seen 70,000 works of art and 35,000. So I think they have 35,000 on display. Right. And 70, they got a, a whole other half that they just sit on and swap out. Yeah. They're whimsy. <laughs> exactly. They're French whimsy. And uh, the French whimsy, uh, or the French whim that directs that now, is a guy named uh, Jean-Luc Martinez. He's the French whim? <laughs> yeah. Well, he's in charge of the whim, right? Yeah. And he's got his work cut out for him because, you know, that whole recession hit everybody, including the Louvre. Yeah, it cost uh, 12 euros for the permanent collection, 13 for the Hall Napoleon. Right. It's closed Tuesdays. But it's open free to the public on Sundays. Uh, for half the year, yeah. And then on Bastille Day, which if you're listening to this when it comes out, is coming up, you can get into the Louvre for free. Yeah, I think it's free during the, the not, I think from uh, up until March and then from uh, April through like September, it's not free because those are like the big summer travel months. Oh, yeah. And That's I, when they stick it to you. Yeah. And I think it's free if you're 18 to 25, or under 18. Okay. And then 18 to 25 if you're uh, from the EU. I think you can get in for free. And if you're an artist. Or student. Come right in. Yeah. For free. All right. So that's the podcast. We should probably <laughs> say what we're talking about to like the 10 people out there who don't know what the Louvre is. Oh, please. The Louvre is um, a world-famous art museum situated in Paris. And it's had a very long life. It was actually first built in, uh, I believe, 1190. Yeah. The Capetian ruler of France, Philippe Auguste. That was Frenchy. Nice work. Uh, Philippe said... Um, I was on the edge of town at the time. Yeah. He yeah. said, I need to protect my stuff, so I'm going to build a medieval fortress. And so I'm going to build a museum. These are the medieval times. I'll build a fortress. And later on, people will call it a medieval fortress. That's right. Uh, it was... Just your standard fortress had a moat, had a keep, which we'll figure in later. Yeah. Because they ended up finding that junk, which is kind of neat. It's very neat. I haven't seen it. I don't remember if I saw it or if while writing this ep- this article, 
Like I found pictures of it and uh, came to think that I saw it. I sadly went to the front door and did not go inside. You didn't go in the Louvre? No. It's pretty neat. <laughs> I told surprised. you, my, my whole backpacking trip, like we literally couldn't afford, we were eating like apples for lunch. Uh, so we did not pay to go into almost anything. Right. Well, you're um, blowing all your money on dinner. Huh? Yeah, pretty much. <laughs> Uninsure for dinner? Why? Apples for lunch and insure for dinner. Yeah. Holland put a dent in our finances. Yeah. yeah. You didn't go in, but at least you wanted to, right? I did. Um, so it, like you said, it was a, a fortress for many years. Right. And about 150 years later, it was not on the edge of the city, which is not a good place for a fortress no. to be in the middle of a city. Right. Because Paris grew around it. And they said, you can't really have a fortress in the middle of the city. It doesn't do us much good. So let's build a big wall around everything. Around all of Paris. Yeah. So now the Louvre was a wall within walls. Yeah. It stopped kind of serving its purpose, like you said. I think sure. it served as like a prison for a while, that kind of thing. Yeah. But then it was ultimately abandoned for a number of years. Yes. And then well, in- Well, that happened a few times yeah. throughout history. It's been loved and neglected like time and time again. Like actually fell into pretty bad disrepair at one point. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, the, in the- th- 14th century, I had it wrong in the article, but I went in and corrected it. Oh, good. In the 14th century, um, after the Louvre had just been neglected for a while and unused, yeah. um, the ruler Charles V said, hey, this would make a pretty good palatial residence for me. A good crash pad? So, yeah. Yeah. So, I'm going to take this ancient medieval fortress and turn it into the royal residence. And he did it. Charles VI did it. And then it fell out of fashion. For another hundred years. Yeah, the Louvre just went back into a state of neglect, but it had taken a first step toward becoming the Louvre Museum. Going was, from fortress to residence had to have helped. Not just a residence, a residence fit for a king. Sure. Marble. Literally. Yeah. Yeah. They, I mean, they tricked it out, right? Then, like you said, it fell into disrepair and neglect for another century. Yeah. Then it became fashionable again. It's like people just kept forgetting about the Louvre. And then every couple generations, the new king would be like, oh, the Louvre, I guess I'll move in there. Yeah, that's kind of how it happened. Chase uh, out the goats. Yeah. <laughs> bring in my tapestries. Uh, so after that hundred years, right. Fran- Francois I fixes it up even more. Right. He brings in his decorator. <laughs> right. And they got some architects and said, let's expand it, actually make it bigger and build new wings and remodel the old stuff. He flipped this. Uh, Fortress <laughs> was the name of the show. Yeah, uh, and he did a great job with that. And Louis the Thirteenth and Fourteenth said, "This is fantastic. I think uh, we're gonna let's keep this up." Yeah, we're gonna kick it up even higher um, until oh, Versailles built, and that's actually way more awesome. Yeah, so we're gonna live there now. Yeah, and wherever the king went, that's where all of the um, aristocrats went yeah. as well. Like they hung the out monarchs, with the, sure. the the court. Hung out with the king. Yeah. And so, like, if the king was hanging out in Versailles, it was terribly unfashionable to be sticking around Paris. Yeah. That's what happened to the Louvre. It just fell out of fashion with the kings. Yeah. And when they went to Versailles, it was uh, unfinished, and they kind of left it that way. Mm-hmm. And then that was when it cut, got kind of beat up. I mean, they had – it was basically abandoning a, a, a construction project in the middle. Right. So they didn't have roofs over some of these rooms. But a lot of the Louvre had been built out, had been well appointed. Yeah. And even though, like, by the time Versailles was built, it was left again in neglect, 
uh, the foundation for the building itself, the house, had been built. Yeah. You know? I wonder when they're going to neglect it next. I don't know if it's going to happen again. It might take the collapse of society for that to happen again. Yeah. Well, maybe that'll happen. Here's hoping. Oh, yeah? You pulling for the collapse? <laughs> yeah, why not? You looking for a road-like situation? Yeah, I'd like to see how I do, how I fare. You want to meet Robert Duvall is what it is. Yeah, pretty much. Is he dead? Or, or no, it's Dennis Hopper. No, he's alive, probably. Duvall's doing just fine. Yeah, man. He's uh, married to a young lady. He's dancing the salsa. He salsas? Yeah, he made a movie, or Tango, I think. He made a movie about it, even. That's Antonio Banderas you're thinking of. No. He made a movie called Assassination Tango, which I have What? Not, where he was like, a, I think he was a hired killer who... No, don't say it, Chuck. <laughs> yeah. No. Uh-huh. Man. Because of his love of the tango. Oh, my goodness. You call that a passion project. <laughs> yeah, I guess. Slash box office poison. <laughs> wow. Man, alive. Yeah. I'm going to delete that from my memory bank. I wonder if he was like, you know what hasn't been done yet? <laughs> yeah. And no one around him said, and it hasn't been done for a reason. Right. God bless him. Um, all right. So let's flash forward a little bit to the mid uh, 17th century. Did you get that date right? I did. It was okay. just the 15th century, man. Uh, and this is when things kind of, uh, this is when the Louvre really started, made the initial transition toward the seat of culture in Paris. Yeah. Because they housed the three academies there uh, that were formed. The Academy, oh, you take it since you're all oh, okay. fancy. <clears throat> there is the uh, Academy de Peinture et de Sculpture. Okay. So Academy of Painting and Sculpture. Yeah, Visual Arts. Yeah. Uh, the Academy Francaise. That's pretty easy. That's uh, the, the official body of the French language. Yeah, which kind of holds the French language hostage. Like yeah. the French language doesn't change unless this governing body says it does. Oh, really? Yeah. It's all prescriptivist. It's very prescriptivist language. Whereas here in the States, you can just make up a word and put it on the internet, and if enough people use it, it's yeah. an urban dictionary, Yeah, and it's a thing. And there are definitely prescriptionists to like drive crazy, but T.S. I wonder if they have a dictionary les urbains that <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah. for French slang. Maybe. Yeah. I'll bet. But right. I'll bet the uh, Académie Française hates it. Oh, I'm sure. You ready for the third one? I'm so ready. This is the Académie des Inscriptions et Belles Lettres. <laughs> uh, and apparently that is uh, deals with humanities, history, and philosophy. So they founded these in the mid-17th century uh, to basically make France as uh, culturally significant and snooty as they could. Well, they, I mean... They're it, trying to protect their culture is what they were doing. I mean, France had become very, like, the seat of culture yeah. around Europe, especially, but also around the world, thanks to the age of exploration. And they were like, eh, let's, let's codify this. Makes sense. Let's cement it. And they did. But they moved those three academies into the Louvre. Yeah, like, no one's over there. So <laughs> almost... awesome building. Right, exactly. So almost as literal... Or as figurative language can get, they moved the seat of world culture into the Louvre. Yeah. So that, combined with the fact that the Louvre was pretty awesome and decked out, really laid the groundwork for the, the modern period to come along. Yeah, and I didn't realize this, but they um, once the academies moved in, they started what would end up being sort of like a, an ex art exhibition mm -hmm. with the Salon, uh, and they basically would have an exhibition, a salon, and they would trot out these cultural artifacts mm -hmm. and 
people would come see him and I guess someone said, hey, this is kind of like a museum. <laughs> right. And they said, that's a great idea. And it should be free. Yeah. And, and these were all really huge ideas. The fact, I mean, these were from the King's collection. Yeah. And the reason that these academies were able to get their hands on it and put them on exhibit for the public for free yeah. was because the monarchy was like, yeah, please don't depose me. Right. Uh, it's cool. It's cool. We're a democracy now, but I'm just here right. being rich. So everybody, whatever you want to do, if you want to show people, that's cool. <laughs> and that's how the, the, the Louvre as a museum was born, was from this French Revolution coexisting with the monarch's art collection and showing it to people for free. That's right. As Louis XXVI said. <laughs> it sounds like a Super Bowl. <laughs> He uh, said he wanted it to be a place for gathering together all the monuments of the sciences and arts. Just don't cut my head off. That's right. Um, and so at that point, it was like we said, it was free for all. They wanted it to. That was the people think, to gather there. Yeah. Uh, and this is what 1793 is when it was officially established as the French National Museum. Yes, and they did cut Louis's head off, <laughs> so it didn't work. No. Uh, it was it had a couple of names. It was the Musée Français. At first, in the Musée Central des Arts. And then the Musée des Antichrist. <laughs> Musée Napoleon? Yeah. Yeah. He uh, came along after the French Revolution, deposed the monarchy, and said, let's try something different. How about I'll be the emperor, yes. not the king, the right. emperor, and I'll try to conquer as much of the world as I can. And he was pretty successful at it. Yeah. But uh, being French... And coming from a France where the, the Louvre existed already now, the, all of these different academies and the idea of France owning art, when he would go conquer a land, and we're talking substantial lands here like Austria, Spain, yeah. uh, Italy, I think. Oh, Italy was where he got a lot of the art. He would say, sign this treaty, and buried in the treaty was, you. we give France control of all the art. Yeah. And so Napoleon would go in and conquer, and then the director of the Louvre at the time, a guy named, um, oh, what was his last? His last name was Dinan. Um, yeah, he was he was the curator basically that he would send around, and he would be like, "I'd like this, right. And I'd like this." Yeah, after Napoleon's armies conquered a place, yeah. the treaty was signed. Dinan would go in and just grab stuff for the Louvre. Yeah, this would look great on that south wall, don't you think? Right. <laughs> and Napoleon said the Mona Lisa would look great in my bedroom. Which is where he put it for Did a he? while. Yeah. What a punk. I know. Yeah, we'll get more on, uh, into the Mona Lisa more later on because it has a pretty interesting history, too. <laughs> <laughs> well, before we keep going on any of this, Chuck, I think we should take a message break. I'm starting to steam up. All right. It's so good. <laughs> Stuff you should know. All right, Steamy. <laughs> yeah. Wipe off those glasses. <laughs> I'm not wearing glasses. Your contacts are fogging up. I've never seen that happen. <laughs> um, so we're the modern history now, right? Uh, I would guess so. We should say that Napoleon was eventually exiled and he, his museum, Musée de Napoleon, was changed finally officially to the uh, Musée de Louvre. Yes. Um, Which it has, has been since. And I think 1815 is when that happened. Yeah. Um, and then, yeah, the in in modern times, we should say that Napoleon gives a good example of one of the ways that the Louvre um, acquired, amassed so many pieces in its collection. Yeah. Was plunder. Sure. We talked about Egypt, Egyptology a lot. Mm-hmm. Uh, a lot of that stuff ended up at the Louvre. 
uh, until Egypt said, I'd like that back. Yeah, and even then, the Lou said, well, how about some of it? Right. Um, and remember the guy who, the Frenchman who cracked the um, the Rosetta Stone? Remember we did the Rosetta Stone episode? Tom Hanks? Campion? Oh, yeah. Campion or Champion? Yeah. Uh, he was the Louvre's director of the Egypt collection. Oh, yeah? Yeah. That makes sense. Yeah. It really does, because, I mean, very few people knew more about it than that guy. Yeah. Um, so, along the way, in the 19th century, the Louvre was not just a museum, but it was also a a uh, kind of a working studio where people would, artists would, great artists would go and study and practice and paint mm-hmm. and sculpt, uh, which is pretty neat. Um uh, impressionists especially uh, have still have a lot of work there and all the old stuff is still there and it wasn't until 1986 when they said let's split this up because there's a, a fancy new museum across the river the Musée des Orsay and they said why don't we just do it chronologically and said anything after 1848 you guys can have I guess that's the modern collection yeah um and anything else old, we're going to hang on to. Right. And so the, the uh, Louvre kind of said, we're going to keep all the Hellenic, Roman, um, Renaissance. Yeah, Renaissance was huge. All that stuff. Uh, and, and we should say um, the, these collections that the Louvre got its hands on yeah. um, wasn't just from plunder. A lot of it was from the kings that had amassed their royal collections yeah. that were basically taken from them for the French people during the French Revolution. Yeah. Um, most notably, Francois I. And he was uh, the French king during the height of the Renaissance, and he used to accept donations to his collection from artists themselves. Yeah. So, like, the Michelangelo's The Slave, the sculpture, Yeah. Michelangelo gave that to Francois I. So, like, a lot of these pieces in the Louvre's collection, like our like they belong there. Some were plundered from Egypt. Some were plundered from uh, during the Holocaust. Yeah, and then some were bought too. Like Napoleon bought a collection from the Italians for like twelve million francs. Yeah, which is a lot of dough. But um, that was the the Borges collection, mm-hmm. uh, close to seven hundred pieces from uh, Greece and Rome. Yeah, I guess it was worth the money. It wasn't <laughs> his money anyway. He didn't care. Right. Yeah. He's like, I just stole all this money. <laughs> right. <laughs> Why don't I just Give it to you for that for, stuff. From from Italy, ironically enough. Uh, World War II came along, which posed a real challenge mm-hmm. to art in general. Um, I haven't seen the Monuments Men. Have you seen that? No, I haven't. I heard it's not very good, despite the fact that it should be. Right. You know? It's, I've heard the same thing. Yeah, like all these great people are in it, and it's still not very good. But supposedly um, the Rape of Europa, the documentary that that's based on, is supposed to be very good. Yeah. Unsurprisingly, yeah, that's usually the case, but not always. I'll, and I also have to say, this has nothing to do with the Louvre. But have you seen the Art of the Steel? Yes. God, that is such a good documentary. Super good about uh, Philadelphia or Pittsburgh. Philadelphia. Yeah, how the city like stole an art collection. Yeah, I mean, it's super interesting. It's just go see it. Yeah, I think it's on Netflix. I think you can get it, it anywhere. It's just a really good documentary. Yeah, agreed. Art uh, documentaries, man. There's nothing sizzlier. There's a lot of good ones, actually. I know. And I'm not even, like, super art guy, you know? I'm not either. I'm just trying to pronounce French here. Well, I say I'm not super art guy. I love museums, and I just don't uh, have the uh, schooling. 
you know, to talk about it. I just know what I like to look at. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. You know who is good at that? Who? If you don't know what you're doing but you want to learn, there's a old PBS series called Sister Wendy. Oh, yeah? And she was this nun, bride of Christ, lifelong, uh-huh. right, who was one of the foremost experts in art criticism and understanding art and was also exceptionally good at explaining it in lay terms. Huh. And you just watch this lady's like shows and she's pointing out stuff in paintings that you're like, I didn't even realize that there was there visually, let alone what it meant. Yeah. And she's just so good at explaining it. So if you want to know more about art, um, especially classic art, yeah. um, but don't know what you're doing, she's a great place to start. And I guarantee it's all over the YouTubes and stuff for free. Cause well, that's me. PBS, I'm, I'm excited now. Sister Wendy. All right. You'll love her. Sweet. Man, PBS, they just get it right, don't they? Yes, they do. God bless them. Um, all right, so where were we? World <laughs> War II? Nazis? Yeah. Uh, the Nazis, they invaded Paris, of course, and they emptied out the Louvre. And, Or, I'm sorry, before they invaded, mm-hmm. the French people said, we need to get rid of this stuff. Yeah. So they gave it to a bunch of rich people who hid them at their various vacation homes. Mm-hmm. And it worked pretty well. Yeah. They couldn't take everything, obviously. But they moved all the stuff out of the Louvre, the French did. And then when the Nazis came and found an empty Louvre, they said, well, we're plundering a lot of art around the world, so let's just use the Louvre as our repository. Yeah, and they literally, like, six massive rooms in the Louvre were, like, packing and shipping of art. Mm-hmm. It became a warehouse, essentially. Right. Um, and they called that the Louvre Sequestration. <laughs> Wait, that's just English. <laughs> Sequestration. <laughs> and, um, yeah, that's that was a pretty dark time. I would say for the Louvre, the, it was the, the darkest. It, it was also a very shady time too, because um, in the '90s there was a uh, Puerto Rican journalist. Um, I don't remember his name, but uh, I read a good interview with him. It's in the "Lost More Information" section of this article. Yeah, who basically started doing some sniffing around. So he heard at some party that like 20 percent of Nazi art that was looted had never been returned. Oh wow! And he was like, "What? That's it, that's." astounding. It's yeah. a terrible number. So we started looking in and more and more and more. And a lot of that art that had been brought into the Louvre by the Nazis hadn't made its way back out after the Nazis were defeated. <laughs> Oops. <laughs> so the Louvre's collection had a substantial amount of yeah. Nazi looted art from, you know, Jewish families that had been killed in the Holocaust that might still have some survivors and right. the museum. And it's not just the Louvre, but, you know, it's a dark spot on a lot of European museums history that in the art world in general, that a lot of art that was stolen by the Nazis was nobody made any any attempts to return it after the war. They just kind of right. held on to it. That's despicable. Well, this journalist from uh, Puerto Rico uh, got to the bottom of it, called the Louvre out, and in the 90s, the Louvre started being like, oh, crazy, yeah, we do What's have some. What's that doing here? Let's find the owners, <laughs> wow. the rightful heirs. So they started giving them back. But there's still apparently plenty of... of um, Pieces in the Louvre, among many other museums. Again, uh, that, Holocaust art is what they call it. Right? Yeah, or looted Nazi art. Yeah, I'm. Su- that's weird that it took this guy from. It took Jimmy San Juan, beat reporter. Yeah, from Puerto Rico. Well, you know, it seems like museums. Uh, what did we talk about recently? What museum we talked about repatriation? Yeah, it was uh, archaeology? archaeology. Yeah, it seems like museums are rightfully taking a beating in popular opinion. Yeah. Because from from you know the nineteenth to the twentieth century, then the middle of the twentieth century with Nazi looting, there are a lot of shady things that sure. museums 
did and just no one talked about it and they got away with it. And yeah. I think taking them to task now and getting things right is is a good thing. I think that there's a right way to acquire artifacts and pieces of art. Agreed. And stealing them from war is not one of them. No. No. Pl- war plundering? Yeah. That's not on your list? No. <laughs> All right. I agree. Uh, yeah, another dark uh, part of the loose history in 1871, the Paris Commune. They're a socialist group and basically staged a revolt. And did they burn down part of the Louvre? They burned down the Palace de Tuileries. Okay. The Tuileries. It's one of those two. Um, and in it was a lot of furniture, some art, and it was part of the Louvre. But apparently it was just by sheer miracle that the Louvre itself didn't also burn to the ground. Yeah. And they rebuilt part of the Tuileries. Um, but the, the, it was apparently like, uh, more of an attack on the vestiges of the monarchy, which was the Tuileries palace still oh, smacked of. Gotcha. So they weren't necessarily trying to get at the art. No. No. Not, not as far as I understand, but it was a big deal because the Louvre was very close by and I think they did lose a decent amount of art and stuff. All right. The, the Mona Lisa has had a, a bit of a history, um, it wasn't always on display at the Louvre. Um, one time, it was stolen. Well, you said it was in Napoleon's room for a while. It was in his bedroom for Next a little to while. A poster of Jordan dunking. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> uh, and then in 1911, it was stolen. Um, apparently, the the security at the Louvre back then sucked. Yeah. Well, you were saying like it was almost like an art studio. Uh, some parts of it, yeah. Yeah. Uh, I think that there's there was, a lot of access. Yeah. And there was a lot of like a lackadaisical attitude towards security. Yeah. And so there was a, a, a big fat body or a security guard named uh, Maximilian uh, Papardine. He, he left work, uh, came back two days later because it was, uh, he left on the day that, before that they closed. Mm-hmm. And he said when he came back, there were four iron hooks and a rectangular shape several shades deeper than the surrounding area. Yeah. And no Mona Lisa. No. For a while, they thought it was Picasso and uh, Apollonaire, and they had a group of like young artists who just thumbed their nose at things like the Louvre. They were toughs. They were toughs, and they didn't like the establishment, the art right. establishment. Yeah. So they thought they might have actually stolen the Mona Lisa as a like a act of protest. Right. What's crazy is when they went to like search these guys' apartments, they found two stolen pieces from the Louvre in yeah. Picasso's apartment. So they weren't too far <laughs> yeah, they're, off. They were on base. But no Mona Lisa. It no turned Mona out Lisa. to be an Italian custodian at the uh, the place. Yeah, Vincenzo uh, Perugia. And he was a repatriate. Was he was trying a... to repatriate it the, the yeah. old-fashioned way. Pretty much. He's like, this belongs in Italy, so I'm going to steal it and take it there. Uh, he got caught trying to sell it in Florence. Um, but for a little while after he was caught and before it went back to Italy, they actually did display it, uh, at the Effuzi Gallery in Florence and took it on a little tour of Italy. So. A little victory lap? Yeah, exactly. So he was fairly, su- uh, successful, uh, in that he did get it displayed in its home country. But supposedly they got the, uh, Mona Lisa, like, directly from Da Vinci is what they said. Do they? I don't know if that's true. And it's not painted on canvas, so you can't like roll it up and stick it up your shirt sleeve. It's like painted on a, on a wood block. Right, birch. Yeah, I didn't realize that. 
I've yeah. even seen it. It's really small. White poplar. Is that a birch? No. It's white poplar. Yeah. <laughs> I got it right in the article wrong just now. Oh, gotcha. So, uh, yeah, it was a custodian. He stole it and tried to sell it. That was where he aired. Right. Just to try and get money for it. But the, the problem is, is, uh, well, it's not a problem. It's just a weird thing. The Mona Lisa has attracted all sorts of strange attention. Sure. Um, as recently as I think 2009 or 10, a Russian woman who was touring Paris bought a, um, a coffee mug from the Louvre gift shop and threw it at the Mona Lisa where it shattered. On the, yeah, because it's behind glass. Yeah, the Mona Lisa's behind bulletproof glass. Yeah. So that mug wasn't going to do anything. Coffee but, mug proof. But glass. it's like, it, even if you know that it's not going to do anything, that's a weird thing to do. Yeah. People have thrown acid at it. Yeah. People have thrown red paint at it, stones. I don't get it. Um, one guy shot himself in the head, committed suicide in front of it. Yeah. It's I tried a, to find more on that, but I couldn't. It's a very, it's a, it's a weird thing. Yeah. There's this thing called Stendhal syndrome. Did you see that? No. Stendhal syndrome is this idea where you are confronted with so much great art. Like supposedly if you travel to Florence, some people are so overwhelmed by the beauty right. of the art surrounding them that they faint. Other people are so overwhelmed yeah. that they act irrationally and want to destroy it or something like Interesting. that. Some people have been known to uh, copulate uh, yeah. in, when confronted with great art in some of these cities. Like well, it's just, it makes them horny. Yeah, apparently. <laughs> but there's this thing called Stendhal syndrome. I don't know the veracity of it, but it, it is a thing. I wonder what that thing is. I just got back from Max FunCon, which is uh, there's a drive up to go to Lake Arrowhead, which is where it is, where you uh, drive up the side of a mountain for like 5,000 feet. Straight up. Windy roads, not straight up. Okay. But um, I had that thing where like you're driving and you're like, I could just drive right off this thing, off this cliff. Oh, yeah. And I, I talked to a bunch of people there and a bunch of people said, yeah, me too. Yeah. Like, what is that? I, I don't know. Not everybody has it though. We talked a lot about it actually because a lot of people identified with it and we were trying to figure it out as a group what that is and I don't know. I think I ended up at... uh. Maybe like a power thing, like I, I know that I could do this. Mm. So you have that urge because it's not suicidal. No, no, it's it's, it's strictly an urge, and and you are aware, like you know, maybe I shouldn't drive too close to this because it, part of me is saying, like, what would happen? You know, it always has to deal with death, though, because when I see a, a cop with a gun, I always think <laughs> I could grab that thing right now. I could just grab it and, and shoot. Something. That's how I feel about ice cream um, sandwiches. You can just grab it and eat it. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> anyway. I know what you mean. I don't think it's related to Stendhal syndrome. I think some people will identify though and have some more information though. But there are people out there. Seriously, remember Chris, the um, programmer who used to work here? Oh yeah. I asked him the same thing because you know I used to smoke. Yeah. And I would smoke out on that deck. And every once in a while, I'd just lean over the side, be like, the railing. I could just jump. Yeah, and then I'd have to like get back away from it. Like, whoa, you know, this is. I don't want to just some part of my brain to go and like throw me over. Yeah, that's the fear. It's like some part of your brain's just gonna take control and maybe you're that's jump, what it is. Right? And I, I mentioned it to him, and he looked at me like I was totally crazy. Oh, really? He's like, no, I've never felt that way. Like, well, I think that was in Louis. Uh, that's boring. Parker Posey talked about jumping off a building when he was on a date with her in Louis. Yeah. Uh, yeah, it's interesting. But that ties back into, to bring it full circle, when the Mona Lisa was stolen, there was a professor at the Sorbonne that 
worried that it was a sexual psychopath who would defile the Mona Lisa mm. in various ways sexually. Mm-hmm. Um, so I guess that ties back into the syndrome you were talking about. Stendhal. Yes. They thought uh, he could take pleasure in mutilating, stabbing, or defiling her. <laughs> Uh, and then return her when he was, quote, through with her. <laughs> right. That's disturbing on many levels. So the, the Mona Lisa is pretty much inarguably the most um, famous resident of the Louvre. But there's plenty of other ones, too. There's the Venus de Milo. Yeah, she's not bad. The uh, Winged Victory of Samothrace. Mm-hmm. Um, Code of Hammurabi. Yeah. That's the, about re- as historically significant as it gets. Right. And there it is, just sitting there in the Louvre. Oh, and we we didn't really ever get around to it. Like the um, Pyramid by I.M. Pei. Oh, yeah, yeah. The uh, new, when was that? The 80s. 80s. Um, this this glass pyramid that's basically like now the symbol for the Louvre. Yeah. It's, it's an entrance. Um, but it goes all the way down to the foundations of the Louvre. And when they were excavating for it, yeah. um, they uncovered the moat and the medieval keep from like 1230. So cool. Uh, and they preserved it. It's on display. You can check it out. Yeah. Really beautiful. I like it when the, the building itself is a part of the, you know, like it is part yeah. of the art. Yes. Like the Guggenheim, you know. Yeah. Same deal. Um, and then at the end of this thing, I said like, you, you have to see the artwork in the Louvre yourself to really experience it. Yeah. And it comes off as kind of flip, I think, but I really mean it. Like, yeah, th- that is a as a bucket list thing. I feel silly for going up to the front door and leaving. You know, you can always go back. I was a kid. Go back. I will. Okay. I will. All right. Okay. <laughs> all right, kid. You ready? Yes. You're done. I'm done. Okay. Um, if you want to learn more about the Louvre, you can type that word. L-O-U-V-R-E in the search bar at HowStuffWorks.com. And I said search bar, which means, Chuck, it's time for Facebook Questions. Uh, this is when I have no good listener mail, and so I go to Facebook. Ooh, burn on everybody sending an email <laughs> recently. And I tell folks to ask us questions, and we go through, and uh, we're going to do this for the next couple of episodes, and we'll just read as many as we can get to. Yeah, so buckle in. Uh, I'm going to go first here. Jonathan uh, Harop says, whatever happened to the TV show? I enjoyed it. Is it a sore subject? Uh, we had one season of a show. And Ten episodes. That was it. That it was not renewed. No. But uh, we hope to do TV again one day, and so wish us luck. And it's not a sore subject. It's a hilarious subject. It is pretty funny. I mean, have you seen how much makeup I'm wearing in it? And it was just awesome. But a bunch of people asked about the TV show, and we appreciate that. We had fun making it. Yeah, we, we still hear from people who are like, it's great. I finally you know, bought one on iTunes. Yeah. Bring it back. And we're like, we're totally powerless to bring it back. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Uh, here's one from Sarah Angelica Piwanski. That sounds made up. <laughs> Chicken or beef? Uh, pork. Ooh. I was going to say both, but I say all three now. <laughs> all right. All three wrapped up in a some sort of roll. I love it. Patrick <laughs> Scott says, what happened to the message break music written by a listener? Uh, Patrick, we were just mixing things up. Yeah. Uh, it might come back again one day. It has come back, remember? Oh, is it back now? Yeah, here or there. Jerry's hitting it sometimes. It okay. came back like a few episodes back. All right. Hit it, Jerry. <laughs> Did we just play that? Uh, I think so. Okay. Uh, how do we pick the topics, Chuck? This is from 
Dino Isildakli. Is- Isidically. Acidically? It's close to that, but with I's and K's instead of the normal. Okay. Uh, go ahead, take it. Oh, uh, well, there's, uh, we always use, almost always, every once in a while, if we have the time, uh, we might tackle a subject that, like, is not on how stuff works. But for the most part, the vast majority of the articles that form the basis of the podcast episodes are from How Stuff Works. So we'll either, somebody will write in and say, why don't you guys do one on this? Yeah, sometimes there's suggestions. Yeah, and then we'll do those. More frequently, there's this awesome little random article button. That's your go-to, isn't it? Yeah, that's what I do. Yeah. I'll just sit there and click and click and, you know, I, I, it's never failed me yet. Yeah, I keep a running list. Basically anything that seems interesting that's not uh, just like what we've been doing, we try to mix it up. Yeah, we do try to mix it up. Uh, all right, this is from uh, uh, Esther Ilona. Uh, she wants to hear about childhood aspirations. Um, I kind of always wanted to write. Me too. And ended up doing that. Me too. Um, for a while there, I wanted to teach. So for the follow-up question, what would you do if you weren't doing this? I, I could be a teacher. For me, it was always writing. Yeah. Ever since I was a little kid. As yeah. a matter of fact, I don't feel like I'm writing enough. Yeah. But we are both professional writers. That's right. Which is pretty cool. Pros, baby. Um, let's see. Do you, Here's one from Stephen Gardner Jr. Haven't heard this one before, Chuck. Do we like each other off of the air? Yes, of course we do. Of course we do. We, I can't. Clearly, if you've seen our TV show, you know we're not actors. He says that the Mythbusters don't, apparently. We've heard that before, too. I've never... I don't know if that's true. I don't think that's necessarily true, either. I think that um, to work that closely with somebody, yeah. or this closely with somebody sure. for this many years... Yeah. To plot and plan and contrive. Yeah. It's not like we just come into work and are like, you know, what do we have to do today? Somebody hands us like the syllabus and then we do it and leave. Like, yeah. we, like we manage this brand. Yeah. And we do it together. That's right. So we have to like each other. Respect. Mutual respect, I think, too. Respect. Respect. Uh, Ryan Mitchell, are there any podcasts one of you wants to do, the other refuses? Uh, I mean, week to week. There might be a, uh, I don't want to do that one, but I don't think anyone said, like, I refuse to do, because we're kind of ideologically on the same page. Right. So I don't think there was any, there's anything that one of us would really want to do that the other would just refuse to do. I can't think of one. Yeah, I think you're right. I can think of plenty we wouldn't do, but none that one of us, that there would be conflict over, you know? Yeah. Except for that one. <laughs> I still can't believe it. Yeah. Sorry. Uh, Chuck. What vegetable do you refuse to eat? This is from Christina Flores. Uh, I'm not. I don't eat mushrooms. Oh yeah. Yeah. I'll eat them, and then like halfway through, however, whatever mushrooms I'm eating, I'm like, oh, that's a bad idea. Oh yeah. Yeah, it's texture. It's all texture. Yeah, for me too. There's some delicious mushrooms out there. I'm sure. Uh, and I used to eat them as a kid, raw, like lick them and put a little salt on them and just eat them. Really? Yeah. And I'll, I, it's still good, but. So what, what's your answer? For me, I know you hate what, Brussels sprouts. I, I I no, I like Brussels. Sprouts. Oh, you do? Yeah, I like Brussels sprouts. I hate peas. Oh, okay. And I've always hated peas. Yeah, mushy. I hate broccoli. I think peas just broccoli. taste bad. That's what I was thinking. Broccoli tastes terrible too. Yeah, it's like Doctor Hibbert said. It's poison to humans, and it tries to warn <laughs> us with its terrible taste. I love broccoli. Ugh. Uh, loves broccoli. I'm just yeah. Like, I'll make it for you anytime. Right. Like, don't let me hold you back. All right, I got one more. 
this is from Paul Parmley. Uh, which one of your episodes should I have the DJ play at my wedding this Saturday? Thinking maglev or fecal transplants? But I defer to your sage guidance. Maglev? Yeah, don't bore people with that one. I would go with uh, cannibalism. Oh, that's a good one. Good wedding material. I would go with um, my standby is always, um, is it legal to sterilize addicts? Good one for a wedding. Yeah, do that one. Play that for everybody. Make sure everybody sits down and is quiet throughout the whole thing. Yeah, you got one more. No toast, no nothing. I do, Chuck. What is that smell? (laughs) Is that from Michelle Morgan Mazoo? All these people have made up names. I think. Yeah, that smell is Josh. (laughs) (laughs) That's the good smell. Oh, okay. What's the bad smell? Oh, then it's me. No, it's the fecal transplant episode. That's what that is. Uh, if you want to give us some questions to answer on Facebook, we like to troll for them every once in a while. Not troll in the bad way. Troll like, hey, anybody have some questions? Yeah. That's what I mean. Like fishing trolling. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You can hang out with us on Facebook.com at uh, Facebook.com slash stuff you should know. You can tweet to us, too, at SYSK Podcast. You can send us an email to stuffpodcast at howstuffworks.com. That's our new old email that works again so please make note of it uh and as always hang out with us at our home on the web stuffyoushouldknow.com for more on this and thousands of other topics visit howstuffworks.com 